1: On the run from one man he tried to kill, a star football player turns to the most powerful person he knows. But after his team turns its back on him, he's first arrested for one crime, then charged with two more. Evidence piles up, but a botched investigation leaves room for questions. This week's episode is Aaron Hernandez, Part 3. Up in the night, your heart fills with dread. Probably a murderer who wants you dead. It could be a ghost, a demon or worse. Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse. It's hopeless, you're doomed. You'd call a priest if you could. You'd rather just listen to who? Sinisterhood. I'm gonna kill you. Amongst all this, the investigation and research we've been doing i wanted to thank you for the gift of cheer oh isn't it it was so phenomenal deli- it was just delightful it was such a uplifting you know a b- pleasant emotional roller coaster very emotional it was joyful at times and uh you know just your heart wrenches for these guys and it was just great loved it
2: who we're talking about cheer the new netflix series heather and i Got to go to the Oprah 2020 Vision Tour this weekend, which was inspiring, phenomenal. She is a world-renowned speaker. She's, My God. it's, it's it, You were in the presence of someone great.
1: We just said we're afterwards, she is just an expert. I mean, she's perfect. Perfect, yeah. Perfect. Flawless delivery. You can see any semblance of a possible stumble. There was mm-hmm. none. No. She was perfect. She was
2: great. The whole thing was awesome, and some of the... People from Cheer were in the audience with the coach, Monica, and Oprah brought them on stage. And Jerry, my personal favorite, is he yours as well? Oh, Protect him at all costs. Did, did Matt talk for Dallas, and I died. You hadn't got there yet, no. but I took video and pictures because... I fangirled out big time and then I just looked for them in the crowd the rest of the time. I was like, what if we run into them on their leaving? social
1: media? It shows them like the things, you know, when we did a dance along there, mm-hmm. Julianne Huff came out and did a dance along. Uh, she did not do a Reiki healing exorcism session. If you saw that on social media, Julianne Huff. It was so. It got your blood flowing. I was. I had to take my sweater off. I was sweating. (laughs) So the Oprah 2020 Vision Tour is an all-day wellness event with multiple speakers. Tracy Ellis Ross was there. She was great. Oh, amazing. Julian Huff. So fun. Oprah talked about her life, and then they have a little dance uh, break to kind of get your blood flowing so you don't fall asleep after lunch. So. It was all and the cheer people on their social media were dancing. They were doing the dance that we were doing, so I nice. was like, we danced along with them. But we that did. show, we also had
2: a moment of meditative silence with them. We yes. experienced that with them. The so big quiet. I feel connected to them even more than I did before. We now. are best friends with the cast of cheer. Full I stop. fully believe that I can find Jerry and be friends with him.
1: <laughs> he goes to the University of Louisville now. Oh. I looked him up on social media i did I followed him though still could happen still <laughs> we'll, could happen. We'll find him not as back. easy
2: as when they were in Navarro, so he came into town for for this. uh-huh, good for them, yeah, well, I'm glad that you enjoyed it. It was a nice respite from the sad, yeah, it is it's and it's nice to. Literally cheer for people mm-hmm. like my heart went out for them, and when
1: they're at Daytona, and it's an underdog story, and so know, good with some of the the some of the they're obviously the best in the country. Yeah. They're not an underdog story, but the people the on the, the team, yeah, and the, the, the things that they've overcome to get where they're at, yeah, it just makes you Morgan, oh, love all her. Of them, Lexi, I love Lexi, oh, Lexi, yeah, they're and all great, Gabby, she's just trying her hardest, she's yeah. trying to be the best she can be, oh, so good, y'all watch cheer, especially if you
2: need a break from. Hearing about uh, all the stuff
1: we're talking about. All the stuff that's about to talk about today. But we do, I feel like we owe it to the victims of this case. We're going to power through and cover the trials, what happened in their trials, and I think what went wrong. What went wrong in the trials. Yeah.
2: Lots of stuff went wrong. Well, I'm Christy. I'm Heather. And let's get into it. Aaron Hernandez was in fear for his life. His failed attempt at murdering Alexander Bradley had left Bradley seeking revenge. Not knowing where else to turn, Aaron requested a meeting with his coach Bill Belichick, to which Belichick obliged. The meeting was set for February 18th at Gillette Stadium, but Aaron was a no-show, claiming personal problems had arisen. Belichick would soon be leaving for the NFL Combine in Indianapolis, an event where the top college football players showcased their talents to prospective professional teams. Despite a hectic schedule, however, Belichick once again agreed to meet with Aaron, provided he come to
1: Indianapolis. Well, at this juncture, they've offered him $40 million. So mm-hmm. if you're a $40 million star tight end, it's like, I have uh, some very intense personal problems. You want to know what it is, if he's going to get arrested or if he's going through substance abuse problems or something. So, you know, if your investment's about he's to go. A,
2: he's an investment to them. And yeah, yeah, sure. He's, he's property. <laughs> Pretty much. On February 23rd, Aaron and his coach met privately in Belichick's hotel room,
1: a visit that the Boston Globe believes to be one of the biggest missed opportunities for the Patriots management to intervene in Hernandez's troubled life. While the two men
2: were the only ones present for the meeting, Aaron's agent, Brian Murphy, later testified before a grand jury that Aaron had shared some details with him of what transpired, according to the Globe.
1: He wanted to talk to Coach Belichick about possibly being traded or or released so he could go play for one of the other West Coast teams, said Murphy. He went on to say that Aaron believed he and his family would be a lot safer on the other side of the country. Despite
2: these concerns, Murphy said Aaron told him Belichick wouldn't allow it, saying,
1: We can't trade you. We can't release you for uh, numerous reasons. Well, that's a bummer. One of them is that he was a very good tight end. The other is, we just gave you $41 million to play for us. That's true. The thing about, and we talked about in the last one, the NFL contracts, it's almost like an option. So you only get it if you play, but he still got the $12 million mm-hmm. signing bonus. So no, no. Yeah. <laughs> you will not be
2: leaving. And, you know, it was just the two of them in that room. I always say there's three sides to every story mm-hmm. theirs, yours, and the truth. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure the truth lies somewhere in the middle. Belichick had kind of a different version of events. Yeah, Belichick painted a slightly different version when interviewed by police in 2013. The police report obtained by The Globe said that according to Belichick, Aaron wasn't concerned for his own safety as he felt protected by his money, but that he was concerned for the well-being of his fiancée, Shiana Jenkins, and their newborn daughter, Aviel.
1: Well, and it may be that Belichick he has a very commanding presence, and Aaron already yeah. respected him. Already, you know, called him daddy, thought mm. of him as this, you know, surrogate father figure. And it may be that Belichick said, "Don't worry about it. Why are you even worried about these people? They're nothing. You're a famous football player. You have money. You have the organization. We're not going to trade you. Don't worry about it. You're freaking out about nothing." Although, you know, they may, like you said, there's the truth. There's the two sides right. that they've given, and then the truth. Because I feel like Bill Belichick, honestly, his behavior for the past forever indicates to me he's not a man that's afraid of anyone or anything including like roger goodell or the police or the fbi he's just i feel like he thinks he's untouchable
2: i also think i don't i don't really understand the argument that aaron would not be fearing for his own life because of his money because his money extends to his fiance and his newborn easily and by all other accounts and his actions of hiring a bodyguard getting multiple guns so many buying guns.
1: armored cars to drive around and clearly shows he was in fear for his life yeah he was acting in the, a manner of someone that had been i don't know threatened a whole bunch of times by yeah. a person who he found very scary
2: yes and there are tons of records of text messages with bradley threatening his life mm-hmm. so i don't really buy that he wasn't he scared. wasn't scared The four-page document also states that Belichick offered to connect Aaron with the New England Patriots security chief or assist him in finding a more secure residence in the North Attleboro area. Aaron accepted the latter. Kind of. Instead of moving with his family to a more secure location, Aaron rented a $1,200 a month modest two-bedroom apartment in a run-of-the-mill complex. Even more bizarre and concerning was that he kept his new digs a secret from his fiancée instead allowing it to become a flop house for his seedy Bristol friends and a place where he could escape from the responsibilities of fatherhood and wedding planning.
1: Have you seen the Netflix documentary? They interview his neighbor who's like, I didn't know who that guy was. (laughs) I love her. He was wearing pajama pants all the time. And I don't know, he was in and out. And it's like, he's a very famous tight end.
2: But you wouldn't think a very famous Mm -hmm. tight end was living in this apartment complex. It just looked like a normal... One, you would drive by in any normal neighbor. I mean, I drive by the ones that look like them in Dallas all the time. It is not a high rise, expensive, luxurious place. that You think someone that just signed a forty one million dollar contract would live in.
1: No, it's it's just uh, run of the mill. I
2: imagine they had normal locks on the doors, Mm -hmm. probably not even security cameras. So it doesn't make sense. And again, is another red flag of. If he's fearing for his life and his family's life, why is he moving into this place that is – and the guy that helped him find the apartment, that works for the Patriots and helps players find homes and stuff, straight up said, I showed him several – places and he picked the the worst one with the worst security
1: well and i wondered too because the doors open to the outside yeah versus if you go and stay you know say he was like well i need to get a place at least closer to the stadium you get a place with a doorman yes and inside interior interior yeah
2: definitely strange very strange well after the meeting with belichick aaron returned to california where he was temporarily staying His injured shoulder required surgery, and he rented a home near the doctor's office for convenience while healing. Shyana and Aviel went too, the three seemingly safe with Aaron. It wasn't Bradley, however, that was giving Shyana cause for concern. Instead of resting the night before his surgery, Aaron was fighting with Shyana, a fight that resulted in Aaron losing his temper so much that he put his fist through a window, according to The Globe. When officers arrived, they noted that Aaron was drunk— but refuse medical help. That's not how I would spend a night before I was about to have surgery.
1: No, it's, well, especially because you're not supposed to eat or drink no, before I, a certain. I, probably, especially not booze. I had gallbladder surgery when I was 19. This was a bad choice. I ate a like 32 ounce steak before, the <gasps> night before. Are you supposed to fast? You're supposed to fast from midnight until the next morning. So you got it in before midnight? Oh, I got it in at, yeah, about 8 p.m. or something. <laughs> <laughs> but the next day where they were
2: like, well, we have two things to remove
1: now. <laughs> exactly. It was like, giant there's like a giant blob of meat. Slab of meat inside of you. Why did you have to have gallbladder surgery? My gallbladder was malfunctioning, which is very rare for a 19-year-old, but it had happened. and. It was your gallbladder uh, filters bile from your system, mm-hmm. and it intakes. It was intaking it at about a ninety five percent success rate, but only outputting it about a five percent. So then bile will get trapped in my gallbladder and hurt really bad. So it make your stomach hurt. Oh, it's called a gallbladder attack, and it feels like you've been shanked in like the ribs. It feels Oof. like someone just came in and just stuck you in the ribs, and it also hurts on the front, and you get nauseated and you sweat. It happened to me when I was in Chicago visiting colleges, actually, and I had to call my mom and say I don't know what's going on with me. And when I came back, they had to do a bunch of tests, which were very horrible. And then, mm. decided, like, it's lasted effort. They really don't want to take it out because it, you know, it kind of causes complications forever. But if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. They can't fix it.
2: We were, I think we were talking the other day about how bodies evolve and yeah. how we have organs that we don't have to have
1: yeah like i need it it's it's much better with it It helps you yeah but you
2: can survive but have you had complications
1: since not having it oh yeah for sure if you eat food you immediately have to go to the bathroom like really oh yeah it's horrible because or if you like my stomach will fill with bile because i don't have anything to filter it so if i don't eat about every two hours i get really sick to my stomach so i look like a i'm like a uh uh, soccer mom will always have snacks with me all the time hey you know what everyone I loves it that. Paris loves it we'll be on a plane and he's like oh man I'm, you, do you have a granola bar I was like oh I have several granola bars <laughs> I have bars. sticks I have yes. crackers
2: do you want a juice box I I've got it all
1: well, I have a, my carry-on bag is a cooler and it's just filled with orange slices Um that's everybody everybody <laughs> wants to sit next to that person exactly. on the they
2: would love me Well, a week later, police were at the house once more after receiving another domestic disturbance call. Aaron, who was now recovering from surgery, was again drunk. After confirming Shiana and the baby were safe, the police left with no further actions being taken. So clearly he's in a state of drinking to excess and raging out and getting maybe not there were no reports of him being physical with her, but he's. Punching windows and walls and mm-hmm. doors and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, she. I mean, she does the forward for Jose Baez's book, and of course, she talks about how much she loved him and how deeply she loved oh, him. Oh, sure, she did. Kind of like I, she knew all of his sides. You know, she talks about that yeah. in interviews too. If I knew, and the one side she maybe didn't know that she wishes she knew was the sexuality side, mm-hmm. but she just she talks about everything else. Like they had no secrets, and they had seen each other at their worst, but. It is scary when you have a small child and he's unpredictable and acting like that. acting so. And later on, we'll see, maybe it had some CTE issues. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the drinking plus the stressors of being injured. You have a lot of pressure. You need to perform your contract. And there's someone who is telling you that they are going to kill you via text message. There's a lot going on right now. Yeah, not an excuse ever to punch a window or scream at your wife. No, but maybe you could see how... How he we got well, there, when, especially when his
2: thought process is. You have
1: this mix of, hor- of stressors, and you pour a bunch of booze on top of yeah. it. Yeah,
2: drinking leads to drama. It just, it's what uh, some of my friends in college used to always say, <laughs> and I'm like, you know what? Nine times out of ten, you're For right. sure. Yeah, somebody <laughs> ends up
1: crying, or yeah. yeah,
2: or it's just like, I've had a lot of fun nights with drinking involved. Mm-hmm. I've had a lot of not fun nights. The with worst drinking. nights. <laughs> yeah. And the next day, so it's always so bad. I rarely drink now. Yeah, I can't
1: drink to excess now because I have acid reflux. Oh, so if I have like two glasses of wine, the acid reflux is too much. I can't like get really drunk. That's,
2: um, I think, uh, nature's way of of pumping the brakes <laughs> to, like, for slow you, slow it down, McKinney. I just don't. It's it's impossible to have a. a your wits about you when you have a two-year-old that needs all your attention Ugh. and you're hungover. It's like, Yikes. how can we make this hangover worse? Just have somebody screaming all day. <laughs> Jumping up and, and down on yeah, you. Yeah, It's constantly needing your attention.
1: And they're like, let's play the Halloween song again. And you're like,
2: oh my God. I <laughs> yeah. can't. Dude, so much Halloween ghost. I told you the other day at the library, without any prompting, the book she chose for herself La Llorona.
1: (laughs) You know what? She's her mother's (laughs) daughter. She is. The
2: apple has not fallen far from the tree. Well, months had passed since Aaron had shot Alexander Bradley in the face, leaving him to die in a parking lot. The two continued to exchange hundreds of heated text messages where Bradley vowed revenge and demanded millions of dollars for his pain and suffering. To counter, Aaron loaded up with guns, armored cars, and made sure his bodyguard, Bo Wallace, was with him at all times. Aaron's problems on the football field were mounting as well. He had been late to practice, and Belichick was exhausted by his antics. In a text message obtained by the Globe,
1: Aaron wrote to his teammate,
2: Brandon Spikes
1: They told me they was trying to let me go, but they're going to give me one more year to straighten out, lol, but I ain't tripping. There's a lack of um, awareness
2: of how serious the situation and, and the privilege he has of playing for arguably the best at, especially this time the best team in the world yeah and he's just t- kind of takes it all for granted or i don't even know if it's taking it for granted is it just the severity of any of these situations never really seemed to grab hold of him
1: and it the rabbit hole i've gone down and uh, is the CT and the mental The trauma that happens to your brain and then the mental effects that it has and decision making and impulse control and things like that, it's affected by your frontal cortex, which gets whacked all the time whenever you're getting tackled. Does it also contribute to to immaturity and kind of like childlike? Behavior that is his brother Jonathan says that ha- was always his personality. But my question is, there has not been enough research done on CT mm-hmm. that if he started playing when he was thirteen or younger, younger. Um, eight nine, I think eight or nine, and, and but significant. I mean, although eight and nine year olds getting hit by other eight and nine year olds is significant due to the brain mass and how it waxes around in the inside of your skull. But his brother described his behavior as being kind of childlike there's an instance where they all go out to a restaurant and it's a really fancy steakhouse and Aaron is eating candy at the table and orders chicken strips and at, at what age 20 something oh he's an adult yeah he's a grown up but he's act, he's acting like a kid and kind yeah. of was always giggling and laughing and i wonder if there's some sort of like developmental stunt that happens yeah. if you start getting Th- those massive concussions at such an early age if, or maybe with the abuse or yeah and the molestation and it he he's per- emotionally stopped growing. Yeah. that could be it as well. so it but it's not like I don't think the CT explained his childlike his affinity for blue bubbleish as bubblegum mm. um, or candy in general. when he proposed to shiana she's sitting in the middle of a room surrounded by family and friends and Jonathan describes that Aaron walks in eating a sucker. Mm-hmm. It's an important event where you're proposing to your girlfriend, and he's eating candy. It's so all it's, everything's very just, nah, nonchalant, cool.
2: Yeah, yeah, and very no, nonchalant. So,
1: and then when we see when he begins committing these crimes, that it's like that's yeah, just another thing I did. Yeah, and not grasping the severity. There's mm-hmm.
2: there's a lot of disconnect between like this is a serious moment, this is a serious yeah. event, and just like something he does every day that's not a big deal. Yeah,
1: I don't think, and I, you know, never, although Jose Baez perhaps would have argued, but I don't think there's any argument to be made that he wasn't mentally competent to stand trial or that he was not guilty by a mental disease or defect. I don't think that at all. I think he's fully culpable for his actions, but I think it's always helpful when yeah. we have a person commit great acts of violence to say, what contributed to this? What, yeah. you know, it's not an excuse, it's what contributed to it.
0: hmm No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Well, Aaron's commitment to football appeared to be faltering. Instead of mentally and physically preparing for games, he appeared to be focused on beefing with Bradley and hanging out with his bodyguard and another questionable character from Bristol, Carlos Ortiz. Both Wallace and Ortiz were ex-convicts, and the two men and Aaron frequently drank and did drugs together at tanya singleton's house Aaron's beloved cousin and he's regressing too when he was 16 to go and drinking at tanya's house that's where he's comfortable man he kind of found this comfort zone and he never he went away and did things he went to gainesville he went to boston and he's you know but he always goes back to where he was most comfortable and his roots no matter how big he got and how much money he was making he seemed to be more comfortable living this street life yeah. with a bunch of just, like, shady characters yeah. that
1: might as well be, you know, in jail. Yeah. They're, I mean, it's almost like characters from a sitcom. It's like yeah. who, two ex-convicts that are hanging out with him and will kind of do his bidding or kind of do whatever he wants him to do. And you couldn't, I mean, it's, it's like fictional characters almost. They're, like, offering him drugs, drinking with him, driving him. And so you just wonder, why was he so attracted to this life? Yeah. I don't know. In
2: recent weeks, Aaron had also been spending more time with a man named Odin Lloyd. Odin was dating Shania Jenkins, sister of Shiana, Aaron's fiancée and mother of his daughter. The two men were familiar and occasionally spent time together, sharing common interests in video games, clubbing, marijuana, and football. Since 2007, Odin had played as a linebacker for the Boston Bandits semi-pro football team. Originally born in the U.S. Virgin Islands on the island of St. Croix, his family eventually settled in Massachusetts, in the Boston neighborhood of Dorchester. Odin was beloved by neighbors, teammates, and family alike.
1: One of the most powerful interviews in the documentary on Netflix is his teammate from the Boston Bandits, oh yeah, and childhood friend, who just gets so choked up about what a good friend he was and how football saved their lives. That yeah. they said in your in our neighborhood, you either sold drugs or you worked for the drug dealers. And they said he said we walked out in the middle of a drug deal in our na- in our hallway and before one guy beat us up and basically said what the what the fuck are you and looking had a at gun to our and head. had a gun to their heads another guy goes hey man you play football with my little brother mm-hmm. all right they're cool let them go they're football players so it's in a way kind of like cheer where you come from this you know kind of a hard background and you find this team and you find they said that you had to pay money to be on the boston bandits yeah. because it's semi-pro you pay whatever 75 bucks a game or something they so did that, not have state-of-the-art equipment mm-hmm. or, or pads or uniforms or
2: anything like
1: that it's like best friends playing for the love of the game and yeah. the brotherhood and the camaraderie and they re- i mean of course they really rallied around the family later but he the friends interview i think is one of the most impactful interviews in that documentary yeah.
2: yeah and he said odin was a brother to him he was the nicest guy he talked all the time about just wanting to have a family get married have kids just a normal life he wasn't aspiring to be an NFL player or make forty-one million dollars or anything, but the the parallel in their two lives, mm-hmm. Hernandez and Lloyd, where was paramount. Mm-hmm. Well, on June fifteenth, two thousand thirteen, Aaron Odin and a few other friends had been at the club Rumor in Boston. Aaron had started a fight with some men. Once the fight died down, Aaron allegedly spotted Odin talking with the men he had just fought. Other patrons witnessed Aaron and Odin exchange words, and Aaron storm out of the club, angrily. The next night, Aaron, Shayana, and some friends celebrated Father's Day at a restaurant, racking up an impressive bill comprised largely of alcohol. Shayana would later testify,
1: We were both intoxicated,
2: according to The Globe. She would also say that several times throughout the dinner, Aaron used her phone to text both Wallace and Ortiz, demanding they come to town so the three men could party. At the same time, Aaron was also texting Odin Lloyd.
1: Is this when he texted Wallace and Ortiz, you can't trust anybody? Um, I don't know if he texted them that, but he was texting,
2: I'm looking to step out, get up here, where are you, get your ass up here right now. Mm-hmm. Clearly there was something going on. Yeah. He was also texting Odin saying, "I'm coming. To, we're coming to pick you up. Mm-hmm. You're going to come hang out with us. According to the Netflix documentary, Killer Inside... Aaron first texted Odin at 9.05 p.m., saying he was coming to pick him up. After meeting up with Wallace and Ortiz, the three men drove to Odin's house in a rental car. The neighbor's video surveillance cameras captured Aaron, Ortiz, and Wallace as they pick up Odin at his house in Boston
1: around 2.30 a.m.
2: I mean, red flags would be going off for me, too. Who wants me to come hang out at 2.30 in the morning?
1: No, and Aaron was very impulsive and would say, we're going to go party. We're going to hit the clubs. But this is the first, I think the rental, the renting of the car is the first in a series of, I think it it, it clearly shows premeditation, mm-hmm. but also I don't even want to call it stupidity. It's almost like a full disregard. It, either he thinks he's untouchable because of how it was in college, mm-hmm. or he just doesn't have the faculties to think through his actions of he rents the car under his own name. There's photographs of him renting the car. Yeah. He returns it himself. He's texting. He's leaving this text trail. I think he does have the the forethought,
2: though, of realizing the car was the thing that got me in trouble in Boston in 2012, and I had to go hide it in my cousin's garage, so I'm going to be smart this time and not use my own car. And rent a car with my own but then, credit but card. But that's where the thought stopped. And then it just became... I don't, I don't know. Maybe it is just stupidity or maybe it is this untouchable thing. But clearly no one there was a, a mastermind. No, on no, How, on how no. to not get caught doing this. It was like uh, how to not commit a crime 101.
1: Yeah. he. I mean, it's just piece of evidence after piece yeah, of evidence. It's
2: wild. Odin had a feeling that something wasn't right and began texting his sister, letting her know where he was. At 3.07 a.m., he sent, Do you know who I'm with? Twelve minutes later, when she asked, Who? He replied, NFL. Four minutes later, at 3.23 a.m., he would send his final text, which read,
1: Just so you know. But you know, whenever you're in that situation where you're worried for yourself, you're thinking, who's awake? Because she was clearly awake. She responded. Yeah. To know where, and they had picked him up from the house where he lived with his mom and sister. And what a feeling
2: when you know in your gut Something is not right. This is going to go down, and I am in danger. And there's really not much I can do except send a text so somebody knows where to look to find me, or yeah, or who to look to in the event that something goes wrong. But he's in a car, trapped mm-hmm. with three men that are dangerous too, especially. Mm-hmm.
1: What do you do? Yeah, and I I wonder when they decided. I think they decided to kill him all along. Don't you think?
2: I think they picked him up with the intention to kill him. Yeah.
1: I don't think it was, we're going to have a chat with him. And he, because at the end of the day, Odin didn't do anything. I mean. It was a perceived slight again. We'll see in the trial,
2: the prosecution doesn't have a motive uh -uh. why this even happened. Nope. No motive has ever really been established other than people, witnesses say they kind of got into an argument the night before. Mm -hmm. Is that a reason you would kill someone? Well, we've
1: seen aaron's pattern perhaps yeah and it sounds like alexander bradley served that role of stopping him from getting into fights with people and he's not around so now aaron's just getting into fights and wanting to maybe take out this uh rage and the nerves he has of, well someone's gonna kill me well i can just kill someone yeah yeah
2: around 3 25 a.m a surveillance camera showed a car driving into an industrial area in north attleboro a mere mile from where aaron lived the area was mostly gravel and away from public view. Between 3.23 and 3.27 a.m., nearby workers heard several gunshots. Around 3.30, the same car was seen driving away from the area. Prosecutors would later say it had one less passenger
1: in it than when it arrived. Just instance after instance, they're caught on surveillance footage. Yeah. They're being Their cell phones are getting pinged. You know, they can triangulate where your cell phone has traveled. If you, again, I do think they picked him up With at least Aaron was like,
2: "This is going down tonight," but that's where it stopped as far as planning. He hadn't scouted out a location. Mm. The he didn't even realize where he was taking him. A mile from his home, Jesus Christ! But also, there's camera. He's literally parked by a camera that's picking up the car. Yes, you don't look around and think, "Oh man!" I mean, any basic person that has any knowledge of like committing a crime would think to do these things but again like where where is that disconnect and what is causing it is it the brain dam- potential brain damage is it this feeling I've gotten away with shit my whole life and I'm rich and an NFL
1: star and I'm untouchable what is it yeah it's 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 just strange because there's not really a question that he did it Ah, uh, not in my mind no <laughs>
2: On the afternoon of July 17th, 2013, around 5.30 p.m., a jogger made a grisly discovery as he was taking a shortcut home. He saw a figure lying in the gravel pit and, upon further investigation, realized it was the lifeless body of a man. When police began investigating the victim, they realized the connection to Aaron. During a search of Aaron's house, Hernandez appeared friendly, even jovial, not worried that the officers would find anything. Suspicious of possible evidence destruction, officers obtained a search warrant and conducted another search. Aaron's attorneys turned over his cell phone in pieces, and the internal video surveillance system in his house was intentionally smashed. Additionally, police learned that on Monday, just hours after Odin's murder, Aaron had hired a team of house cleaners to scrub the mansion, according
1: to ABC News. Just uh, incident after
2: incident. I mean, you. this is like... A Criminal Minds episode, yes. Where it's, I mean, you have all this evidence, just a trail of evidence laid before you. You couldn't ask for more evidence it's if you're the prosecution. Vaguely
1: suspicious. How much? Yes, evidence is available. It's
2: almost like if he wasn't the one doing these things, you would think someone is setting him up and yes, and putting all of these markers everywhere just to prove how much he did this. Mm-hmm. It's such such incriminating evidence. He's it's, just doing it to himself. Yeah. It turns out exactly. On June 26, 2013, police officers arrested Aaron Hernandez at his million-dollar mansion on charges of first-degree murder, one count of carrying a firearm without a license, two counts of possessing a large-capacity firearm, and two counts of possessing a firearm without a firearm identification card. In Massachusetts, charges of first-degree murder carry a mandatory sentence of life without parole. That day, his officers whisked Aaron out of his home, handcuffed arms behind his back, White T-shirt pulled tight over his arms. It would be the last time Aaron Hernandez was a free man.
1: It's a very famous image of him yes. in red long basketball shorts. Uh, he was clearly shirtless when they cuffed him, and then they just drugged the T-shirt over his arms. And they talk about on Netflix, and also Jonathan in his book talks about. Then people started Hernandezing, it became a viral thing,
2: where uh, there's several clips on the Netflix documentary where like cute, cute college girls are Hernandezing with t-shirts over their arms and their hands behind their backs and stuff and it again it bothers me when things like this get watered down to just be a viral moment a and meme. a punchline and a joke and, and a, a meme, meme. Yeah. because this man killed Several people. Yes, and we're all now just think it's funny to
1: like call this thing Hernandezing. It's, it's a bit tasteless. A bit. Yeah. It's a take on. It's very tasteless. I'm uh, hyper hyperbolizing, but mm-hmm. uh, the you know it's the take on the T-bowing where he would like lean down and pray on the yeah. field. But you you know you will I always just try to look back at not look back, but you know you look at something like that and say this is. This is a monster kind of a person. This isn't something I want to, like, chuckle about. Not that I don't have a sense of humor. I think I have a pretty sick sense of humor. But when it comes to something like... It's almost... it light. It's like lightening it. it yeah. Like you said, it Like takes away the gravity of the scenario of mm-hmm. this man is arrested for, in cold blood, executing, theoretically, kind of his brother-in-law. You know, a, a family member, a person beloved by the community. Uh, Not that, you know, any party person's life that it's taken that they deserve it, but it's one of those where... It's not like there was a self defense or there was a fight right. or a, a confusion. It was he purposefully took someone out and executed him. It's not really like a meme kind of thing. Imagine
2: being Ursula Ward. Yes. Odin's mother, who is just the whole distraught and heartbroken. And you see college kids and adults laughing on the internet Hernandezing. Yeah. The reason he's getting arrested is because he shot her son six times mm-hmm. that's definitely not a, a, funny. a meme funny worthy to her no no. So I, think about the victims in these cases before you do something completely asinine
1: that's spread across the internet
2: forever once yeah. it's out there it's out, it's out there
1: i wonder who the people are in those pictures that were on that netflix documentary and they're like oh shit that was me that was 13 <laughs> years ago or not 13 it was in 2013 i don't even remember doing that yeah but it is out there forever i just i don't know it kind of it. my question is, like, from a moral perspective, does it – It sort. maybe you do it to soften the blow to yourself. You know, it's a way to deal with it in an unhealthy way, arguably in a harmful way. But also, does it – the effect that it has on others, that it becomes, like, a funny thing? Hot take, I'm not a fan of uh, Jeffrey Epstein memes. I don't love those. Me either.
2: I'll tell you right now, I'm real sick of seeing the uh, – how, how many ways can we put Epstein didn't kill himself in, like – I, we were at um, Trinity Grove last night for dinner and on a date, an older couple on a date or perhaps married, whatever their relationship was, they were on a date, they were holding hands, they were clearly, an older balding man, heavy set, Just wearing a T-shirt, big old bold letters, Epstein didn't kill himself. Wow. Like, it. I turn to Tommy, I go, it takes a certain individual to, on date night, decide, this is what I'm going to wear.
1: Well, and I get it. And it's technically, if there was some sort of government cover-up and a conspiracy, we want to, like, bring that out. But there's some some, like, memes that are out there that you're just like, at some point, you think, I think it desensitizes us to some heinous stuff that happened. And maybe I'm speaking out of two sides of my mouth of a person that hosts the podcast about a lot of crime and also cryptids and stuff. Let's not leave Nessie out of this, but <laughs> you know, you're, it, does it desensitize you to hear about it? I mean, I think and hopefully you and I do a, jo- a good job of this, that we do try to think about extrapolate. How did this happen? What, how, what the effect it has on the victims, what effect the laws and the changing. And in this case, a huge change in the law will have on society going forward. And it's less gawking and maybe more invest, not investigating, but like introspection on, on something. But yeah, I don't know when you, you see people Hernandezing, you're like, like you said, I don't think Ursula Ward thinks that's very funny. No. And even there's a uh, Lorena Bobbitt documentary
2: out right now, and we've gotten a lot of messages about. Yeah, we got to cover that. How, and yeah, definitely. But again, it's one of those things where until you start diving into it, you don't yes. realize. What happened to this woman? Yes, and she became watered down to a punchline. Yes, an SNL sketch. The mm-hmm. same thing happened with Monica Lewinsky. I was talking about this with friends the other night. You know, like if you really like, she was a twenty, twenty-one-year-old intern who was dealing with the most powerful man in the United States. Mm-hmm. And con- confiding in what had happened to a friend of hers who she didn't realize was recording all her freaking conversations yep. and betraying her. Like, that is sad. And that is uh, it's something that she became just a punchline, a line in a song. I will defend Beyonce till the day I die. She became a li- Monica Lewinsky all over her dress. You know, yeah. like, it just became this punchline instead of, like, thinking about these people
1: as victims. Well, I think the hard thing is, Especially the internet, you want to have people want to see an article and they just like comment. They just say the first thing, mm-hmm. and it's easy to make a snap judgment. Like I always say, law school warped my brain, and I'm always like, oh, I'm gonna need more information before I can make a decision on that, which is probably not good. I think a lot of times you should just follow like your first instinct, but when it comes to distilling stuff down, it's just easier to swallow, right? It's e- it's easier to digest and say, oh, ha ha ha, it's funny. She cut her husband's penis off, and here's a bunch of jokes based on that. And I don't know like I said, we're comedians. We make fun of ourselves a lot. And, Mm -hmm. and I think stupid things in the world, but when it comes down to like somebody got hurt or somebody was abused or someone was a victim of a crime, it's like, you know, that's maybe not the the easiest way to deal with it is making a meme. And that's maybe not the best way. I think people
2: get, and we see it in comedy shows all the time. Like people laugh when they're uncomfortable or Mm -hmm. nervous and they don't know how to handle things. And I think Maybe for some, like, compartmentalizing and, like, kind of distancing themselves from, like, this is an actual thing that happened and turning it into, like, a joke makes it less real. But it's very real to the people it happened to in their families.
1: Yeah everybody's you're here's the thing you're allowed to make fun of whatever you want yeah it's but a free world it's what is that ref, the question is what does that reflect on you yeah yeah
2: i mean and that's the thing with comics all the time there's so many famous stand-up comics are like nothing's off the table you can make anybody can be made fun of every race can be made fun of every religion sexuality every religion anything can made, be made fun of sure yeah there are repercussions to that exactly and a, if you don't get booked places because you decide you want to go on a rant about Muslims, then guess what? That's, that club has that right. So I think it's a personal line each person has. I know
1: mine. You yeah. know yours of what we don't cross. No. And it is. a. Ref- I think it's, that. the things you say is a reflection of your who you are. Yeah. And if you care and I it's a whole thing we're like way off topic but whatever <laughs> but the whole thing about like dave chappelle and he went off on this like transphobic rant and mm-hmm. then in the next special thought he was like thoughtful and said you know someone said this genuinely hurt me like i loved you as a comic and i felt like you turned on me then of course then he had another special and it went a whole nother way and so that's the, but you, that's the thing you have to grapple with is you can say whatever you want i say this all the time you can say whatever you want freedom of speech means you're free to say whatever you want doesn't mean you're free from the consequences. Right. So, like you said, if you're not going to get booked or people don't like you, that, it is what it is. Yeah. And you can
2: Hernandez all, all day long. But if uh, you might get talked about on a podcast for being kind of a dipshit for doing it. <laughs> kind of a dipshit. That's a fair. I
1: think it's a fair assessment.
2: <laughs> well, just 90 minutes after he was arrested, the New England Patriots announced they were dropping Aaron from their roster.
1: Robert Kraft owner of the Patriots, was quoted as saying, Following Aaron's arrest, I read a number of different accounts of how things transpired in our organization. Let me be clear. We decided the week prior to Aaron's arrest that if Aaron was arrested in connection with the Lloyd murder case, that we would cut him immediately after. The rationale behind that decision was that if any member of the New England Patriots organization is close enough to a murder investigation to actually get arrested... Whether it be for obstruction of justice or for the crime itself, it is too close to an unthinkable act for that person to be a part of this organization going forward.
2: Well, that's fair. I think it is fair. I do wonder, had they gotten more involved when he went to Belichick and said, I fear for my life, blah, 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 blah. If they'd done some digging to see... Why are you, Why do you fear for your life? What's going on? And they figured out all this Bradley stuff and and kind of thing. And they talk about this in the Globe article. If that had started to be investigated sooner than it was,
1: would Lloyd have even been murdered? Lloyd probably wouldn't have been murdered, but I think somebody would. I yeah. mean, somebody already had been. Yeah. but But would have,
2: had they gotten involved sooner, could it have possibly saved a life? Because maybe he would have... Hernandez would have already been arrested and been in jail for the Boston shooting or
1: he would have been in another city, you know, playing. But then would somebody in that city have been pushed him in a club? And so you think
2: it was it didn't even matter who it was. You just think it was going to happen. Was, I think it was a ticking was,
1: time bomb. Yeah. He, uh, you can't have a, a person with that level of rage and aggression. And which he had coupled with drug and alcohol use, coupled with drug and alcohol use, coupled with un uh addressed uh health both mental health problems and then sexuality problems separately and also just like a bunch of guns yeah and hanging out with people that had a bunch of guns all the time that his family walks up on him and he's scratching his chin with a gun or he's cleaning a gun or he's walking around with it and i mean he he just had him and would brag to his friends i just got a 45 cal you gotta Mm -hmm. check it out some those you can't put a gun in the hand of a person like that and there's not going to be. And even if he didn't have a gun he may have choked somebody to death. You don't know. He just had this unchecked aggression of yeah. perceived his slights by people. You pushed me. You spilled my drink. You were talking to people I fought with so you're not on my side anymore. It's kind of like us versus them. Almost like a gang mentality which yeah. I think could have made him a better football player even if he would have said yeah i'm full in on the patriots if y'all come for us we're going to be the best team and i'm going to defend my brothers no matter what but instead it was me and my 'er ne'er-do-well pals from bristol you've slighted us power for evil instead of good yeah on the football field
2: Coach Belichick read a seven-minute prepared statement to the press before addressing his team in private. Patriots player Dane Fletcher recalled to the Globe how Belichick was very clear about his views on the former tight end.
1: He's not part of this team. He will not be spoken about in this locker room. Yeah, they said
2: he was basically like, his name doesn't get mentioned. He it's we will not talk about this. This is something that is is not even up for discussion.
1: The organization did a free jersey exchange. You can bring your Aaron Hernandez jersey in. Uh, And I bet there's murderabilia places that sell those. Oh, yeah. And I bet. Yeah, or just people hung on to them and sold them on eBay and mm-hmm. stuff. But yeah, it's they they didn't want his that name on the back of their jersey. And I think isn't one guy in the Netflix documentary that said that really sucked for me because my last name is actually Hernandez, and I was excited to have <laughs> That's a why jersey have jersey yeah. <laughs> with my own name on it, and now I have to get rid of it. But yeah, they were ready to scrub his existence. Yes, yeah. and they
2: took down his all his accolades at his high school, mm-hmm. which when his mom told him that when in jail. Apparently, that really affected him. Yeah. He's like, what? They're even doing that? Like... Your legacy is yeah, gone, man. Yeah. yeah. It's like, we don't want you to have any ties to our organization. Mm-mm. While Aaron sat in jail awaiting trial for the murder of Odin Lloyd, police officers in Boston became suspicious. A year earlier, they had been investigating the murders of Daniel De Abreu and Safira Furtado, two men who had been gunned down outside a nightclub in Boston. At the time, police had searched video surveillance footage of the club, where the men were last seen on the night of the murders. They had been surprised to notice Aaron Hernandez heading into the same club as the victims, but shrugged it off as a coincidence. But when Boston PD detective Mark Sullivan now saw Hernandez arrested for another murder a year later, he began to think the football star might have had something to do with the unsolved Boston shootings. With his suspect in custody awaiting another trial, Detective Sullivan had plenty of time to gather evidence and make his case against the former tight end.
1: Jose Baez paints this as for no reason, no reason other than Mark Sullivan saw Aaron Hernandez be arrested on TV, that he just, uh, the Boston PD starts to force the pieces of the puzzle together. I would argue that's pretty good investigative detective work yeah i wouldn't think that it's unrelated if you have people murdered by gunfire and you see a person who was at the scene murder someone by gunfire it's not uh unthinkable to connect the two
2: no not at all had it been a regular joe schmoe i would imagine i would hope the same outcome of somebody saying this guy was here at this time and here at this time possibly these things are connected i think so i think you're a bad detective if you don't In addition to arresting Aaron for Odin's murder, several of Aaron's known associates were arrested as well, including his two friends, Carlos Ortiz and Ernest Bo Wallace. Ortiz let officers know that Aaron's second residence, the apartment in Franklin, Massachusetts, may contain some evidence the police would find interesting. Upon searching that location, officers found clothing and some ammunition that officers believed would connect Aaron to Odin's murder. Despite his cooperation with police, Carlos Ortiz was charged with accessory after the fact to Odin's murder. Probably because he knew where
1: the evidence was <laughs> I located. Mean,
2: yeah, he may have cut some kind of deal. Also... How quickly your friends will turn on you. Those Seriously. friends that, that, I mean, how surprising. The ex-convicts who all you did was do drugs with and do nefarious acts, they turned on a dime on you. Suddenly,
1: like, do you want to know where the clothes are that he wore the night? Yeah, I can point when, him. To them.
2: when threatened with their own uh, freedom, yeah, yeah. In late June 2013, police continued to search for evidence. One place they looked was the home of Aaron's most trusted and beloved family member, Tanya Singleton. As they executed a search warrant for the Odin Lloyd case, they were perplexed to find a cobweb-covered silver Toyota 4Runner with Rhode Island plates sitting in her garage. Little did they know, they had just found the car that Detective Sullivan of the Boston PD had been so desperately searching for since the prior summer.
1: Yeah, this is a slam dunk for old Sully. Dang! I don't man. know if he, his friends call him that, but I'm going to call him that. I like that. Imagine getting
2: that call. Yeah, too. It's just like. I, I, you see it in TV shows and movies and everything, just detectives that have that one case that they can't solve. There's that one missing puzzle piece and then it comes together and it's just this glorious, like, I did it. It's finally happening. We're going to get this son of a bitch. Mm-hmm. And to think, like, I'm not crazy. This person didn't just disappear mm-hmm. into thin air. It's been hiding
1: this entire time where I, there's no
2: way I could have found that.
1: No, we found it. It was finally, and it's so specific, the silver yeah. forerunner with the plates and the cobwebs. So it clearly hasn't been driven And it's around. Aaron's cousin? Yeah. Who you already are like, I feel like this guy is connected? And it was registered to Dang. a dealership for which Aaron had done a commercial. Man. And the dealership said, yeah, we gave him a forerunner with the Rhode Island plates. Good Lord. Yeah.
2: On August 22nd, 2013, Aaron's case for the murder of Odin Lloyd went before a grand jury. One of the witnesses called to testify was Tanya Singleton. Prosecutors suspected that Tanya had assisted Ernest Wallace in fleeing to Florida after the murder. But Tanya's loyalty to Aaron was unwavering. She refused to testify and was charged with contempt of court.
1: It's a powerful image of her suffering from breast cancer, I believe. Yes, very like late stage late stage uh,
2: had oxygen you know looked very sickly each time you would see her in another courtroom scene she looked like she was going downhill a little bit more mm-hmm.
1: and, and she
2: still refused and the stress of being imprisoned. your your loved one on trial for murder you're having to go up there already in a weakened state i, I, I mean I, I don't I don't know if it's right or wrong, yeah. but, I mean, I guess technically
1: it's wrong. Yeah, I mean, it's loyalty. You, ha- you,
2: have, you should do your due diligence
1: as a fellow citizen. Yeah, it's one thing to be loyal, but it's quite another to actively, Withhold information? Yeah, I was going to say, uh, impede an investigation yeah. when there are families that are like, we just want to know what happened to our kids a year ago. So, in that case she legally can, it is her right to say, no, I'm not going to answer any questions. So the, the problem is she refused to testify. She did not invoke her fifth amendment right against self-incrimination because if they said, if you had the car, we're going to charge you with accessory. And she doesn't want to say, yes, he told me that he committed a murder with this car and I let him hide it in my garage. And he hid it in my garage last year because I knew it was a murder thing. That would be incriminate uh, testimony that would incriminate her. Right. Mm-hmm. What she says is, Oh, go screw yourself. I'm not telling you anything, in which case they will hold you in contempt. And what does that mean? That means that the judge can lock you up for as long as it takes until you decide you want to talk. So did they lock her up? They did lock her up. I feel like they eventually let her out. Shauna also didn't get locked up, but got charged. But they, if you don't, if you either lie or don't testify, they will lock you up for as long as it takes for you to talk. So... In her case, she was suffering from an illness, and I think they say, okay, well, we get it. We're going to move on. And honestly, after the grand jury proceedings, it's a moot point to hold her in criminal contempt uh, because they don't need her to testify anymore because yeah. it's you know, come out however they want. But that's the, the difference between refusing to testify and being able to be held in contempt versus saying I am invoking my Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination because if I were to testify, you would then be able to lock me up. Um, And you can't trap me by putting me on the stand under oath and having me testify. So what she could have testified without incriminating herself was... He came to my house on the night of the Boston shootings, whatever night it was, and said, hello, may I park my car in your garage? And I said, sure. And he parked it there. And frankly, I forgot it was even there. Or I just figured he got a new, better car. And I didn't even know why why it was in there. None of that is incriminating. But like I said, to her, correct. It's incriminating to him. And that's what they wanted her to say. And that's why she wouldn't say anything. And that's why she wouldn't say Because I guarantee you, the truth of when was this parked here was the day of the murders. (laughs) So why was it better for her to say,
2: I refuse to say anything versus...
1: It was not better. Uh, if you say...
2: I have plead the fifth.
1: If you plead the fifth, they go, okay, you can go home. Thanks for help. Thanks so for So why help. wouldn't she just say that? Because, uh, well, and then you're perjuring yourself because her testimony, I don't think, would have incriminated her because there was no underlying criminal complaint. Like I said, if they had threatened her and said, if we find out you knew about this, we're going to charge you with accessory after the fact... But they never said that. They just said, how did this car get in your garage? Hmm. And she just said, I'm not going to tell you. Sounds like she didn't have very good legal advice. I don't think she did. <laughs> I think she was going on her own. Yeah. Um Street legal team. So, yeah. Or Aaron's, maybe Aaron's lawyer told her. I don't know. I, but I, that's a conflict. I don't think he would be able to uh, yeah, advise her. Adv- he would advise her, get up there and tell the truth.
2: Well, Shyana Jenkins, Aaron's fiance, did testify in the proceedings, However, police believe she lied several times under oath. And on September 27th, 2013, Shiana was indicted on charges of perjury. Those charges were eventually dropped after her truthful testimony at Aaron's later trial. Yeah, perjury is where you lie on the stand. So how could they tell she was lying?
1: Um, I want to say there was text messages to the contrary.
2: So they just flat out said, girl, look at this.
1: Yeah, they said, did you uh, did he text you and ask you about moving the gun safe? And she said, no, there is.
2: On the Netflix documentary, there is clear surveillance footage of her going into the room. The text message is like, hey, um, big box behind the theater screen in this room, in case you're looking for it, LOL, something to that effect. You see her coming out of this room with a garbage bag, carrying it, though, like you would carry a giant box. So it's clearly heavy, and you can see it's like a metal type of box. Struggling with it, carrying out of their house, Puts all it of car. the all of the footage is caught. Puts it in her car and drives off. You can't argue with that.
1: No, no one thought to turn off these fucking cameras if you're going to be doing that kind of stuff. So then they ask her all these questions and she lies. And then they go, "Cool. Well, we have text messages, video footage." So then they say, "So we see that you took the murder weapon and what happened?" Well, I don't know what I did with it. Try that again. Well, I threw it in a dumpster. Which dumpster? Well, I don't remember. Well, they say, that's a little thing we call accessory after the fact. And we're going to charge you with that. And she says, I would like to say all the things about my fiance if you will not charge me. Because she wants to save her kid, right? Yeah. You know, she wants to stay home with her kid. So, dang. spoiler alert. I think that's a good
2: reminder of, rarely are you asked a question on the stand that they don't already know the answer to.
1: That's Abraham Lincoln. He That's famous. a famous quote. Oh, was it? Don't ask a question you don't already know the answer yeah. to.
2: And if somebody, if a prosecutor is asking you a question, they already know the answer. If you lie, you're about to get a text message thrown up on that screen for everyone to see that you then have to answer to. Your Honor,
1: may I approach the witness with the following evidence (laughs) is what you're going to hear. Yeah, Yikes. Yeah. So I think uh, it's a case where I think they thought they were a little bit smarter than they were. Yeah. Despite the loyalty
2: of his family and fiance, the grand jury still indicted Aaron on all counts, including first degree murder. Aaron was to remain in the Bristol County House of Corrections while he awaited trial. While the Lloyd family waited for the criminal system to provide justice, they took action on their own, filing a wrongful death lawsuit against Aaron on December 19, 2013. Meanwhile, Aaron appeared to have quickly adapted to his new life in jail, even seeming to relish and thrive in the structured environment. In a recorded phone call to his fiancée, Aaron sounded relaxed and content.
1: My room is very organized. I have everything lined up perfect. I have my little trash in there, everything all folded. I always make a nice, perfect pillow. You know, it's actually cozy. I think I enjoy it too much. Yeah, and some of the calls, he doesn't seem like, God, I just want to get out of here. No.
2: I mean, it's very... the On the Netflix documentary, there's a ton of calls. In the Gladiator podcast that the Boston Globe has done, they have a ton of calls in that, too. And they're kind of all over the place. And some in this one, the the, Shiana replies like, I cannot believe how just nonchalant you're behaving about this. Mm -hmm. I'm here caring for our daughter by she's growing up by herself. I'm dealing with all of this shit at the house, the the press. I can't leave the house without being hounded and everything. And you're telling me that, like, you're cozy in your jail cell? Mm-hmm. Again, the gravity of the situation
1: did not seem to resonate with him. Yeah, I was lost on him a little bit. And then his mom was going through the same stuff. His brother was going through the same stuff of being hounded at the bottoms of their driveway yeah. and being tricked. And some guy came up and said, hey, I brought you guys sandwiches. I'm a friend of your dad's. Uh, you know, I knew him before he passed away. How are y'all doing? And then Jonathan said, "It took about two questions for me to go. You did not know my dad. You're a reporter. You're a fucking reporter." And he's like, "I can see that there's a recorder in your pocket. That it was like unscrupulous trying to attack the family. So it's like, even if you're like, you know, I get it. I have to stay in here. It's no big deal. At least feel bad that your family is suffering, but based on your actions and choices, your little girl. Yeah. Jail
2: time had also allowed Aaron the opportunity to reflect on his relationship with his estranged mother." He eventually decided to forgive her for marrying his cousin's ex-husband, telling a friend in a
1: recorded jail phone call. It used to ruin my life, but the only thing is, like, people do crazy things for love, and I I understand, so, like, I can't judge because love makes you do stupid things. So he was coming to terms with a lot of
2: stuff. He had a lot of time to think. It was very—it was a roller coaster of his emotions and his behavior, and the phone calls were all over the place. It was— some would be like like a little kid like excited to talk to his former teammates that he would
1: call and stuff there was some joking around with his some very inappropriate joking around I with believe, his agent his agent i believe when he said hey they dropped you from the endorsement for he, nike for nike and then he goes yeah i don't think they want to put the nike logo on prison clothes and then they both laugh heartily and then he says
2: you think you can get me an endorsement with smith and wesson ha 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 and then ha, they ha. laugh
1: heartily wild again
2: it's, it's just a joke to him yeah and he knows he did these things mm-hmm. it's not as if he i mean there might be people that that think he's innocent i'm not one of those people mm-hmm. i think the evidence is just pretty pretty clear-cut so he knows he did this and he's j- still joking around like as if he didn't he's mm-hmm. still claiming his innocence mm-hmm. so is he joking around to show like look how innocent I am. I'm not even worried being serious about this. I'm not even worried. Mm -hmm. Is it one of those things where you tell yourself the lie so much that you start to believe it?
1: Or he, like you said, we said he's emotionally stunted. Yeah. Or he's behaving like a kid. The brain damage
2: doesn't, allow him to like really grasp what's going on
1: something he's it's 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 like we said you can never know how you would act in that similar situation but i think humanity you know humans we can say that seems aberrant that seems different than what i would expect to see we've
2: heard a lot of recorded jail phone calls Mm -hmm. and rarely are they like this even with like convicted serial killer like the bundy tapes and stuff he admits to everything but he's a, a psychopath, a serial killer. Maybe, maybe Aaron's also a bit of
1: a sociopath. I don't know. I uh, don't uh, Yeah, or something was going on that it's just, just not clicking. Stuff. Yeah, it's not clicking. Aaron spoke to his
2: mom regularly while behind bars. Some of the conversations would be heated, rehashing old wounds, while others were friendly, reminiscing about better days. Still, Aaron seemed to enjoy the break from his pre-jail life. Telling her in one phone call.
1: Jail doesn't bother me. I've been the most relaxed and less stressed in jail than I have out of jail. I think he thrived on structure.
2: Yeah, his dad was alive. It was very regimented. I mean, like we talked about in the first episode, he wouldn't. They had to, you know, do throw five hundred baskets before they could even leave the house. They had. It was just very structured and and regimented routine, even football is too Mm -hmm. your coach is doing
1: practice at this time we're gonna do scrimmage at this time we have a game then you're gonna eat then get study then yeah
2: that's what he needed was like structure and routine which he could have got had he chosen i mean i can't imagine someone more structured routine than bill belichick yeah what he demands of his players but also in jail he there probably was a sense of relief like i'm not having to be on the lookout for Bradley constantly mm-hmm. gonna kill me. I don't have to worry about all these responsibilities. People tell me when to get up, they tell me when to eat, they tell me when to go to sleep, tell
1: me what to eat. Yeah, tell, I don't have to make decisions when I work for out. myself. Mm-hmm. It's all kind of
0: handed to me.
1: Mm-hmm. It's it's. It makes sense why he would fall into you know fall into enjoy that familiarity. Yeah.
2: Occasionally, Aaron would exhibit bouts of rage by banging on his cell door and screaming loudly, according to the Globe. He showed signs of depression in many of the phone calls to friends and family on the outside, telling one of his Bristol friends, Freedom.
1: That's not what I miss. It was the same thing I missed when I was on the streets. Aaron didn't elaborate further on what that thing was. What do you think it was? Marijuana?
2: No, I think it was... Dudes? I think it was of purpose. Oh. Maybe you're just having a sense of belonging. When I was on the streets. Uh, to me, when I was on the streets means him living his life in Connecticut. But that's all speculation on my part. It was the same thing I missed when I was on the streets. Hmm. Because he then goes on when he's talking to his cousin Tanya And showing, like, more
1: honest and vulnerability, saying, I'm just one empty person. I've been like that for so long. Maybe his family? That was the ultimate structure. And that sort of fell apart when his dad passed away and his mom married his cousin's husband. I think he did feel empty. And he was always trying
2: to fill that emptiness with something drugs, alcohol, uh,
1: violence. Having a family.
2: Yeah. Fitting in somewhere because he had all this other shit going on. Yeah. On April 11, 2014, before Aaron's trial for the murder of Odin Lloyd would even begin, Boston police charged him for the 2012 murders of Daniel De Abreu and Zafiro Furtado. He was indicted a month later, on May 15, 2014, and a few weeks later at the plea hearing, pled not guilty. In June of 2014, the court set the date for the Boston shootings for May of the following year. But later in November of 2014, the trial was delayed indefinitely, While the Lloyd trial was pursued, the judge also warned the prosecution in the Lloyd case that no evidence or mention of the 2012 Boston killings could be brought up during the trial for Lloyd's murder. So even though they can't
1: bring it up, the jury knows, right? Uh, They would probably ask them, I imagine this voir dire would take a really long time, because you'd have to ask people, have you heard of Aaron Hernandez? Everyone raises their hand. Mm -hmm. How many of you guys are fans of the Patriots? Everybody raises their hand. So you're already coming in from the prosecution at a disadvantage, because it's a hometown hero, kind of, that they all love the team. But then you would ask him, have you heard of the killing of, or have you heard anything negative about him in the press and if someone raises their hand then you take him aside and say what have you heard and that person's going to get kicked off the jury
2: and because those boston murders had happened years before and there was already speculation that he was involved people would have heard that oh for sure
1: yeah, and that's the question is then, do your possible jurors, are they lying to you? Because then they say, mm-hmm. okay, if you've heard, have, how many of you have heard negative you know, news about Aaron Hernandez, or how many of you have heard that he killed people before, and they raise their hand, and they say, would that bias you? And they say yes, and you kick him off. There could be someone sitting there not raising their hand. Yeah, sure. Definitely.
2: On January 29th, 2015, the trial for the murder of Odin Lloyd began. Shana Jenkins attended court every day, supporting her fiancé, while her sister sat on the opposite side of the aisle, weeping for her slain boyfriend. Those powerful images in the yeah, Netflix documentary. definitely. During the prosecution's opening statement, which lasted nearly an hour, Odin Lloyd's mother, Ursula Ward, wept as a graphic photo of her son's body was shown to the jury. Odin had been shot six times with a forty five caliber handgun, once in his right forearm, once in his right flank, two in his back, which showed that he had been crouching down and two in his chest. So they
1: got him out of the car. Yes, and I think he was trying to escape. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the prosecution's belief was that Aaron stood over him as he lay on his back, shot him in his back. He falls to the ground, lays on his back. And then Aaron shot stood over him and shot him twice more in his chest.
2: You had he had to have known when they pull into that gravel thing because he may have thought okay, we're going to Aaron's house because they were a mile from his house. And that's also where his girlfriend was. Mm -hmm. Shiana was at Aaron's house. The surveillance footage from the interior of the house in the living room, when someone calls to tell her Odin's been shot, he's dead, shows the two sisters embracing. Yes, hugging each other in the Hernandez home. Yes, in the home of the person that had just killed him. Who's
1: at the house with you?
2: That's so crazy. Yeah. But he had to have known when they turned into that gravel this it was is it over with, yeah. God, what a terrifying last few moments. That shit keeps me up at night, man, mm-hmm. thinking about that. I can't let my brain go there too I much. I start to
1: right? I start to uh I have a very active imagination and I can just fully imagine stuff and I one night when I had a nightmare, I was just like he was You know, my brain starts going. Did you plead? You know, was he pleading? Did they tell him to shut up? Did he just quietly accept it? And then it just made me really upset and woke me up. Yeah, I think about that stuff a lot. The prosecution presented the two
2: most damning pieces of evidence that definitively put Aaron at the scene of the crime: a half-smoked blunt with Aaron's DNA found near Odin Lloyd's body, and a footprint that matched Aaron's shoe
1: exactly. And the footprint was—it would be as if you were standing in front of. Uh, standing over odin's body facing him so that was the exact print match who just throws down a
2: blunt they've been smoking next to the person they just murdered
1: the same person that leaves a bunch of 45 caliber shell casings in the rental car along with blue bubblicious bubble gum Wild That they bought, that they were seen on surveillance footage, buying earlier in the day, that they offered to the rental car lady. I yeah. mean, come on. It's it's so conspicuous. It's uh, almost as if he was framed. He wasn't. I'm not saying no. he was. Like you said, though, it's it's, it's almost like he's trying to get caught. Like, that too. I will not leave any
2: stone unturned. There is no mm-hmm. doubt that I did all of this. Aside from writing, I was here. Yeah. And signing it. Yeah. Aside from just fully admitting it. Mm-hmm. The prosecution's case hinged on several other pieces of evidence as well. the surveillance footage of the car coming into and leaving the industrial park around the time of the murder. The footage recovered from Hernandez's home, showing Ortiz and Wallace with Aaron immediately after the slaying. And the text between Aaron and Shyana that indicated Aaron was instructing her to remove a gun safe from the home and dispose of it. The judge finally granted the prosecutor's request to have Shyana testify against Aaron in exchange for immunity. On the stand, she testified that she threw the gun safe in a dumpster, but couldn't recall which dumpster.
1: Because there was... it's Again, you can't say, I don't know what you're talking about, because there's video footage of it. And there's text messages instructing her to do it, and her saying, okay, I will do it. But what just
2: uh, audacity to be like, I don't remember. You don't remember the dumpster that you disposed of a murder weapon in? That would be imprinted on my brain till the day I die. Agreed. There's no question you know exactly it couldn't have been
1: far from your home yes an that's... FBI investigator in the McMillions documentary I've been watching says that they can tell when someone's lying because something that that changes your life something like that that's so high stakes that you can repeat it from memory even if it's the memory of the memory there's no hesitation or confusion yeah. or I don't remember
2: the defense on the other hand argued that Aaron had nothing to do with the murder He simply was hanging with the wrong people and emphasized that Aaron was a scared kid who was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Defense attorney Michael Fee claimed that while Aaron was at the scene, he was
1: a 23 year old kid who witnessed something that he saw a A shocking killing committed by someone he knew. He really didn't know what to do. So he just put one foot in front of the other.
2: However, juries likely didn't believe Aaron's shock and horror. Given the surveillance footage, police recovered from his home. Though Aaron attempted to destroy the footage, what remained was damning. The footage from Aaron's own house showed that after the shooting, Aaron, Carlos Ortiz, and Ernest Wallace drove to Aaron's luxurious home a mile away from where the murder had occurred. A camera on the exterior of his house shows Aaron pulling into his driveway and exiting his car holding what appears to be a gun. The interior cameras then show Aaron walking around his house, gun still in hand. It's
1: uh, not a reliable testimony when they ask Shiano, "What do you think's in his hand?" And she says, "Oh, I don't know." You can. The jurors are like, "Well, we sure do." Yeah, it's a gun. It clearly looks like he's a gun. holding it like a
2: gun. He's rubbing it on his shirt like a gun. He's non—and again, just nonchalantly walking around the house with a freaking gun. He just used to caliber. kill somebody, just in his hand.
1: There's a baby in that house. Yeah, that's the other thing, too, that you're bringing these friends that you're so scared of. Yeah, in yeah. a house with your baby. Footage from the following morning
2: shows Ortiz and Wallace sleeping on the couches in Aaron's den. When Aaron appears on screen, they all fist bump and hug one another as a greeting. Aaron later brings in his infant daughter, Aviel, and lies her on one of the men's chests. Later, they are seen once again hugging in the driveway as Aaron bids them goodbye. The defense attempted to argue that Aaron was so afraid of the two men after he saw one gun down Odin Lloyd in cold blood, but the footage seemed to show three friends enjoying one another's company.
1: Yeah, I think that's when the defense case just went beep. Yeah, they on the documentary they show
2: all of this, mm-hmm. and there's no sound. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just this footage, and they said you could hear a pin drop because everyone was just <gasps> in awe of the callousness mm-hmm. of. It looks like these guys just went out clubbing for the night and are mm-hmm. sleeping one off, and then they're just
1: like, "Hey, bro, see you later." Yeah, they just fucking murdered someone. He's a scared twenty-three-year-old kid who's just hugging and handing his daughter over to these people. Yeah,
2: and can we just for a second say this poor this poor daughter? Yeah, because she this was in twenty thirteen. She's think, she's like eight probably uh-huh. at this
1: point. Yeah, she knows what all's going on. One day she's going to see all this. Or Google something. And yeah. There's an interview with Cheyenne on Good Morning America, I believe. And she talks about how she's tries to shield her daughter from stuff like that, but that she knows and it's inevitable that it's going to come out. And well, everything. she also took
2: her to one of the days of trial. Yeah. And she was sitting in, in, and Aaron was blowing her kisses and stuff. And mm-hmm. she's probably like four. She looks terrified. Mm-hmm. On April 15th, 2015... After six days of deliberation, the jury convicted Aaron Hernandez on all charges, including first-degree murder. Under Massachusetts law, he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Aaron, who had remained fairly stoic throughout the trial, slumped to his chair, a look of shock on his face. His fiancée wept for him, while Ursula Ward wept for her beloved son. Well...
1: It finally all caught up to him. Yeah, it's it was a lot of evidence. The I think all the stuff in the rental car after he returned the rental car himself. There were shell casings that matched the shell casings of Odin Lloyd. The footprints in the gravel facing Odin Lloyd. The shooting. He had bragged about having that exact caliber of gun just a month before. There's footage showing him buying this very specific blue child bubble-ish bubble gum. He had offered it to the woman at the rental car. He had also spat it out in the rental car and it had stuck to one of the shell casings. So his chewed gum DNA was then on a shell casing, a spent shell casing from having uh, murdered a person. He would also
2: rented this car that all of this shit was in in his own name. Yes. And with was, his credit
1: card. And was seen in the uh, lobby renting it. <laughs> Yeah, so there wasn't a lot, I don't think, that the defense attorney so I think the defense attorney basically had to say Yeah, 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 he was there. Yeah,
2: you can't argue with the fact that he wasn't at that point you just have to say he didn't pull the trigger. Yes, exactly. But again, for him to be shocked that he was just sentenced and found guilty Mm -hmm. after this mounds and mounds of evidence is presented. Yeah. Just shows again, like, he was sitting there this whole time thinking it ain't going to happen. And in, yep. in phone calls to people from jail, he'd be like, they don't have anything. I'm fine. I'll be out of here soon. He honestly, I think, didn't think he was going to get convicted. Yeah. he Well, he thought wrong. But he'd also been got off scot-free. For lots of stuff before. Yeah, in college and, and even before that for not something this severe. But And he'd also been... Uh, not convicted of a murder he'd committed several years before, he'd just been on the lam with no one knocking at his door, hiding the truck in his uh, cousin's garage. Aaron was temporarily incarcerated in a maximum security facility just a mile and a half from the Patriots' Gillette Stadium, his former professional football home. Eventually, authorities moved him to the Souza Baranowski Unit, about an hour northwest of downtown Boston. After Aaron's conviction, both Carlos Ortiz and Ernest Wallace were sentenced. Ortiz pled guilty to accessory after the fact in 2016 and was sentenced to four and a half to seven years. Wallace was acquitted for the murder, but convicted of accessory after the fact and received the same sentence as Ortiz,
1: four and a half to seven years. Yeah, I think there was no question that they were involved in some way. Is that a pretty light sentence for that? Uh, accessory after the fact. I mean, I think that's in line with the Massachusetts uh, statutes. Normally, I would. It's weird that they didn't. Um, they didn't charge him with conspiracy, although maybe there wasn't sufficient evidence to show that they knew that they were going to murder a person on the front end. They may have thought, "Why well, don't we do these shakedowns with Aaron every once in a while where we we'll go with them and, you know, beat somebody up or whatever. So they could maybe have argued they didn't know that they were going with the purpose to murder. But very clearly, they had killed a per You know, he had killed a person. They drove with him in the car and then took the clothes to the. Apartment or whatever disposed of what you know, any number of items. So I think it was you charge with what you have them. Maybe they cut a deal with them, yeah, that
2: too, for them to give up that information at that apartment and stuff. The conditions at his new maximum security prison took a much harder toll. Inmates are required to spend 20 hours a day in their cells, which, according to the Globe interview with his attorney, George Leontire, was one of the hardest things for him. In addition, Aaron was getting into trouble with the guards, resulting in him spending time in the hole on more than one occasion. A new neck tattoo he received soon after
1: arriving also alluded to a gang affiliation. Yeah, it's not county jail. No. 20 hours a day. In a cell with one tiny small window with little bars over it. Yeah. That was about nine feet off the ground, maybe eight feet off the ground. Seven
2: by ten probably is mm-hmm. your cell. According to Leontire, Aaron's hard time at Susan Baranowski may also have contributed to him confiding to his mother secrets he had been burying deep since his childhood, that he had been molested, and that he was gay. And Leontire
1: is the attorney that he confessed to as well yes that he because mo- was also
2: gay yes and he confessed that he had been molested and that he thought the molestation had made him gay
1: because they interviewed leon in the documentary yes. and said he asked do you think people are born this way or can you be made this way and leon like well i think you know you're born that way but happy to listen to whatever yeah. questions you have meanwhile
2: prosecutors continued to build the case against Aaron in the 2012 shootings Still out for revenge after being shot in the face back in 2013, Alexander Bradley began cooperating with police and prosecutors, informing a clear picture of what happened the night of July 16th, 2012. On August 27th, 2015, Bradley officially received immunity from prosecutors in exchange for his testimony against Aaron, an act that Bradley allegedly bristled at as it conflicted with his inherent aversion to snitching.
1: Yeah, he did not. Well, he wanted to settle it himself. But I think after Aaron was locked up, he couldn't get to yeah. him. Yeah. So, and he hadn't got to him for those e- years
2: <laughs> for years trying to, which is kind of surprising.
1: Yeah, it's weird that I mean maybe he was more he wanted like a payout because I don't understand why he wouldn't and I, and they said Aaron was afraid of it that he wouldn't just go to practice and just yeah t- you know take aim from the stands. I or, think he could have had him killed had he really wanted yeah, to. Yeah, done it himself or had someone
2: else yeah. do it for sure. Yeah. Knowing that a tough trial was coming his way and concerned that perhaps his first trial wasn't defended properly, Aaron reached out to famed defense attorney Jose Baez, well known for his successful 2011 defense of Casey Anthony. Baez met with Aaron and formed an immediate connection. In his book, Unnecessary Roughness, Baez describes his feeling that although Aaron had made some bad choices, he wasn't a murderer. Baez then set about doing his own investigation into what happened in 2012 in order to prepare for trial. This is
1: a very good book, and it's obviously Jose Baez is an excellent writer, and he talks about meeting Aaron for the first time and saying, you know, I got you. I'm going to work as hard as I can and make sure that the police have an airtight case. Otherwise, I'm going to poke holes in it. And Aaron goes, fuck, yeah, and high fives him and gives him a hug. Again, your life without parole, which they're appealing, you know, they're going to appeal but then you're on, you're about to get, you you have been charged and are about to go on trial for a double homicide and your response is high five, fuck yeah. yeah. Wow. Also,
2: you're already in prison for life.
1: Well, I mean, and Jose Baez argued that he had a slam dunk appeal and he was ready to appeal it and it was going to be... For Lloyd's murder? Correct. So he
2: was also going to appeal the Lloyd, Lloyd conviction correct. while also working on the 2012 shootings. Yes.
1: He he, uh, assembled a great legal team, which included Leon Tire, who is a local counsel because Baez is uh, licensed in Florida, and then he gets Robert Sullivan from Harvard Law School, who's a practicing attorney, also a professor and formerly a dean of one of the colleges of Harvard Law School. But the students had him ousted because he's uh, representing Harvey Weinstein along with Jose Baez. The two of them are representing Weinstein. Oh, really? Yes. Didn't know Baez was doing that.
2: Indeed. Well, 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 add that to your little bedpost notch <laughs> of pieces of shit you've defended and and might get off. Going in the Baez Hall of Fame. Good Lord. Baez first requested the Boston PD turn over all the documents they had gathered regarding Aaron's involvement in the 2012 shootings. In return, Baez received over 30,000 pages of documents. His number one question as he began his investigation was how does the Boston police suddenly come up with Aaron as a suspect, after knowing he had been at the club since day one. As he uncovered more evidence, Baez reviewed police documents that indicated a, quote, anonymous phone call came into Boston PD, telling police that Aaron was seen getting into a silver Toyota forerunner with Rhode Island plates the night of the shooting. Upon further investigation, however, Baez stated in his book that he believes the manager of the Cure nightclub that made the call was actually coached by police in an attempt to falsely implicate Baez's client, Aaron Hernandez.
1: Yeah, there's apparently a person named B or D who's they literally don't know which letter he goes by, but he's a frequent Patron of the Cure nightclub, known by the manager. The manager happens to also work at Harvard Law School, happens to also know Robert Sullivan. And they get to talking, and the manager says, Oh, yeah, I was sitting here talking to the cops about providing security footage. And this B or D guy comes up in full view of the cops and says, Hey, you see Aaron Hernandez get arrested? Yeah. You know, he was here the night of that shooting and he was in a silver Toyota 4Runner with Rhode Island plates. Anyway, just thought you wanted to know that. Okay, bye. The cops don't stop this guy who's a well-known police informant. They don't stop him and talk with him. Let him walk away. The cops on the scene tell the manager of the nightclub, you know, you should really call this in. You should call it in as an anonymous tip. And the manager goes, okay, whatever. Here's the footage, like, see you later. And the next day, he didn't call it in. And He didn't call it in that day, didn't call it in the next day. He gets a call from the cops again that goes, hey, did you call in that thing that you heard when we were standing there? And the manager's like, you were standing here. Why do I have to call it in? They're like, oh, you know how it is. You have to call it in. And so he calls it in. And on the recording, you hear him go, oh, you remember that shooting? It happened just at the end of X um police precinct but before why police precinct starts so he's describing he doesn't say between first avenue and you know who would know that main street it's like he's been coached to say it's where precinct 14 ends but right before where precinct one starts and jose baez postulates that it is because the man has been coached by a police officer to say the specific precinct so that the call the anonymous call would get routed to immediately to the correct precinct that was investigating the homicide so
2: what would be the advantage of an anonymous tip over the police taking the information that informant had given and running with it
1: they were jose Baez was saying that the cops didn't want to say mark sullivan literally saw aaron hernandez on tv and went I'm gonna to try to build a case around him. They argued and said we weren't gonna, tr- we weren't looking at Aaron Hernandez. We were just investigating the crime, and somebody randomly called in and said that he was in the car. So that's why we started looking at him because Jose Baez's whole thing was this is a setup job. The cops saw him get arrested for one crime and was like, he was there. Let's just pin it on him. And so that was his kind of narrative that he was telling. Was and that- how did
2: he explain? The forerunner that was found
1: in Aaron's cousin's garage. Yeah, I don't. That's a great question. No, I mean <laughs> he's they. Then he Jose Baez says, and there's diagrams and stuff in his book that they used at trial that says that Bradley was the shooter. Aaron was driving again. He, he was there. Wrong place, he wrong didn't time. Pull the trigger and possibly there was possibly crossfire so again it's like if i was there i didn't pull the trigger or if i did pull the trigger it was justified so very good defense. there's a reason why jose buys oh, is famous he's a he's very good defense lawyer phenomenal he's
2: i mean if i ever needed to get off on something big i would call him that's what she said i'm sorry
1: <laughs> but <laughs> uh No, yeah, he, I mean
2: he he has a track record for. Be, I mean he's a great trial lawyer, and
1: I will also say, you know, in the my review and study of the OJ case, that in some instances, I think those attorneys went way beyond a zealous representation of their client to almost becoming borderline unethical. Border there's been law review articles written about, you know, how zealous you have to be. I think Jose Baez is perfectly zealous, he's very, very zealous, and he does the exact job of the burden of proof is on you, state. Prove it. And here's all the holes I'm going to poke in your case. And if you can't fill those holes up, then guess what? You have to, you know, not guilty. No,
2: yeah, it seems all above board. Yeah. Jose Baez also attacked the Boston PD's mishandling of the crime scene. When the first patrol officer arrived on the scene the night of the shootings, he followed protocol and checked the two victims for signs of life. Sadly, He found none. Protocol says that the responding officer's next priority after securing life is to set up a perimeter with crime scene tape 100 feet around the scene. From the photos reviewed after the fact, the responding officer only placed crime scene tape about 30 feet from the scene. That means any evidence outside the radius that should have been
1: preserved would have been contaminated or destroyed. Could have been, uh, you know, tire tracks or if things they shot out of the car further down the road, anything like that.
2: Additionally, the responding patrol officer then should make a crime scene log showing which officers responded, where certain evidence was taken, etc. However, in this case, no such log was ever made. Officers are then supposed to park their cars so as to block anyone from disturbing the scene. Photos from that night show Boston PD cars parked so close to the victim's car that they would have driven over blood trails and projectiles.
1: And for as much as he's a defense attorney, Jose Baez also is just indignant and offended on behalf of the victims at how this crime scene was mishandled. Good for him. And he says, you know, they they just, they his kind of narrative was that the cops showed up and said, oh, it's two African-American young males in a car that's been shot up. It was probably gang. Immediately, the cops come out and say, it was a gang shooting. We're never going to solve it. Screw it. Let's all go home. It was a gang shooting. Who cares? That's the, the narrative that Jose Baez and, frankly... It appears by some of the evidence, either they were poorly trained or they didn't give a shit. Yeah. Either one. It doesn't look good yeah. Um, on this department or at least the, some of the officers that responded. It does not look good. But that he's offended that at no point did the, they actually do the things that they were all supposed to do. He's yeah. like, here's the 50 protocol things. And you did four of them. Yeah.
2: Proper protocol with EMS had also been mishandled. EMS should be escorted into the scene told not to disturb anything, and a log should be made of what exactly they touched. This didn't happen for the EMS responders attending to Daniel De Abreu and Safiro Furtado. Instead, EMS placed sheets over the victims' bodies, thereby destroying any blood pattern evidence.
1: And their argument was, well, reporters had showed up and were close enough to take photos, yeah, because you didn't put the perimeter hundred feet like yeah. you should have. So then it's the errors start compiling on each it's other. It's trickle down effect. And they make these things called crime scene screens. That it's a big ass. It almost looks like you know what you would uh, change behind if you're like a model at a photo shoot. It's like a yeah. vinyl screen on fa- uh, feet. And Jose Baez says, why didn't you put those out? And the Boston PD goes, oh, we don't have those. And he says in his book, I had literally Googled the night before crime scene screens. And he said like the third image on Google results was Boston PD on printed on a crime scene screen. And he said, does this photo look familiar? And they're wow. like, oh, damn. Well, whoops, because they had put a screen they had put a sheet over the, the windshield and then over each of the victims bodies. So just totally they're just going in and destroying yeah. the crime scene. This is like John Bonet. That's, that's what I think. That's what we were saying earlier when I was like, there's just thing after thing in this. Yeah.
2: Jose Baez also noticed there were more police reports than usual in this case. Many times, not all officers who respond to a scene write reports. But when there were reports from every officer in attendance, Baez became suspicious. He believed that there was a singular event that officers on the scene were trying to distance themselves from. When he read the report of Officer Thomas O'Donnell, he hit the jackpot. Officer O'Donnell wrote in his report that he saw a street sweeper go through the area on the side of the street where the perpetrator's SUV would have been. Baez believed that if there had been any shots fired from the BMW, then the sweeper would have swept all the evidence away.
1: Yeah, he said that he's going through going, there's just way too many police reports. And then, yeah, he figures out that this is a major fuck up because they should have had a car parked where nobody could drive up. And it was by the time the street the sweeper had passed that they all kind of turn and look and go, oh, shit. Also, does the sweeper not see
2: that the, there's like, a freaking car with, like, bodies in it and flashing police lights.
1: everywhere around and not think, maybe I shouldn't be over in and this they, area? And, you know, of course, it sucked up broken glass that did it shatter from the inside Who of the knows the car what all outside? it sucked oh, yeah. up? Yeah.
2: Daniel Day-Abreu and Safira Furtado were not the only two men in the BMW that night. Aqualine Freire was in the back seat and was also hit by the bullets. When he was at the hospital later that night, the nurse on duty asked him what happened. According to Baez's book, the nurse's notes showed that Freire told her he and his
1: friends had been in a gunfight.
2: Baez used this to propose that perhaps the victims had been shooting at Aaron and Bradley as well.
1: Again, it's trying to poke holes in the theory that they, you know, just came and shot out of nowhere.
2: I mean, that's smart. And... If the sweeper had swept away possible gun shells that had come from their BMW, mm-hmm. that's another thing that you can add to your list of look at all the ways you bundled this case. Oh, yeah, it was botched. When Baez reviewed crime scene photos of the bodies of the victims, he noticed the lighting was different from other photos of the scene. He pressed investigators who were forced to admit that the photos of Daniel De Abreu and Safira Furtado were not taken as the car was parked on the scene of the crime. They were, in fact, taken in a crime scene bay after the car had been towed.
1: This blows my mind. What what I'm about to say, mouth agape. Seriously, I stopped my car. I was stopped in a parking lot, and I had just sat there, just jaw dropped.
2: Baez learned that officers and crime scene investigators didn't take photos at the scene that night. Instead they propped the car up on a flatbed tow truck with Furtado and De Abreu's lifeless bodies still inside, drove the truck across town to the forensic lab and took the photos there. Baez writes in his book that while he and the victim's families were not close, they were cordial, and Baez expresses outrage at the indignity of the Boston PD, dragging these two men across town on a tow truck covered in sheets. Rather than transporting them properly.
1: He's he's very in the audio book, he's very indignant and he says they he goes, I don't mean to be crass, but he said, I felt so mad that they treated these victims like Weekend at Bernie's. He yeah. said that's literally what they did. That he said all I could think of a, is how they're driving across town, hitting train trestles, you know, going over speed bumps. When they People should People are been... driving by in cars? Yes. I mean
2: wh- what's the windows were shot out they're covered in a sheet is that still
1: visible no and he said that he goes what should have happened is take the photos put them on a stretcher and give them the respect and dignity of being handled like but again his narrative is that the the cops were like eh fuck them they're a bunch of gang members who cares and treated them kind of like eh that's fine just take them that's fine just tow the car I mean the actions match up with that narrative that he's pushing oh yeah I don't think it's uh, far from the truth no
2: The police argued that they needed a search warrant to get in the vehicle and take photos of the bodies, which is why they towed it with the victim still inside. This is false. A Fourth Amendment exception called exigent circumstances allows law enforcement to enter a place if they think someone is injured or if evidence will be lost or destroyed. They do it all the time. There was also no reasonable expectation of privacy when the windows were down or shattered. There was also a photo at the crime scene that shows crime scene tape stuffed in the back seat of the BMW, showing that a police officer had gotten into the car at the scene.
1: And Jose Baez brings up the point that the the gentleman in the car didn't own they didn't own the bmw as their sisters so he's like the owner of the car has a reasonable expectation of privacy so they're not going to be upset and the sister's not there she wants the crime to be solved no one's going to argue that you weren't allowed to search it it was a very bs excuse after the fact when he busts them and says really you treated these bodies like they were you know crash test dummies you just left them in the car yeah like nothing and they say oh well uh because we were uh worried about oh really since when are you worried about the fourth amendment if if
2: if somebody, if I heard my name, if I heard gunshots go off from my neighbor's house, I call the police. The police can enter that house without a search warrant to see what's going on. Exigent circumstances. So, if you think, yeah.
1: Or if, if the cops are outside and they're like. Let us in and you're say you're going to go in and serve a warrant on uh, getting a bunch of papers like say, oh, we need to go in and, uh, you know, find all these tax returns because they've been, you know, whatever, stealing money. And then you start smelling fire like they're setting everything on fire. Yeah. You kick the door in and you go in and you stop them yeah. from burning the evidence. So that's one of the scenarios. There's, you know, the Fourth Amendment is you can't be searched without your consent. But then there are these exceptions. These men were dead. Yes. In a car. It was the crime scene. Plain view, you can see in it. Take ch- ch- take the
2: photos from. The- you don't even really need to get in it. Mm-mm. You, I mean, the windows are bl- blown out.
1: It was bullshit. that's, yeah, it was that's a- the lamest excuse I've ever heard. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was clearly again kind of forced after the fact. Ultimately, Jose Baez's dogged
2: investigative work and in defense tactics proved successful, and on April fourteenth, two thousand seventeen, the jury acquitted Aaron Hernandez of the murders of Daniel De Abreu and Safiro Furtado. The jury had not found Bradley to be a credible witness, resulting in a weak case by the prosecution. Upon the verdict being read, Aaron Hernandez broke down in tears. His fiancee, Shiana, also wept, Aaron's only family member present.
1: Yeah, and the Bradley, all of his testimony, a lot of it is on the Netflix documentary, but it was, I feel like it was all kind of tainted by all these text messages of, Give me my money, pay up, I'm gonna fucking kill you. You tried to kill me. So it was easy for Jose Baez to go, This guy. Clearly did the shooting and is here for revenge. He,
2: and he's got a rap sheet a mile long. He's yes. a known a known felon. He took this deal and is now pointing the finger at his friend because he doesn't want to go to jail.
1: True. And then there was also a whole deal about the gun that Bradley said, oh, Aaron took his shirt off while we were driving in the car, wiped the gun down, threw it out the window. And through, through the, po- gun the, yeah, threw the gun out the window. Yeah. Through the gun out the window. Then the police found it's in honestly highly recommend. If you want to deep dive into the evidence of each of the trials is Jose Baez's book, because he really does break it down. And the Boston police there's a woman that's in an accident, and she turns out she went to Bristol Central High that School. I was all a bit confused. And she's like Facebook friends with Jonathan Hernandez, and they find this gun in her trunk, and she says, Well, it's not my gun, it's my friend. And it's this 1927 gun that had been stolen in Kentucky like years and years ago. And the cops try to say, And it's all stained and scratched and rusted with a serial number on it. And the cops try to say, Oh, this is the gun that Aaron Hernandez used in the killing. And Jose Baez is like, This man has an arsenal. If he really why why is he the, using
2: an antique gun? Yeah, it
1: was this really weird, and not even like a nice antique gun. It was like a beat up old stolen gun, and so it was this really weird. Again, it's like these strange efforts on the part of either the prosecution or the you know it may be that the police were trying to shoehorn this in. Because they didn't have a murder weapon, but it was just not grasping
2: at, at straws, grasping
1: at straws. And I think, of course, the prosecutor, you're like, well, I have to work with what I've got. Yeah. And they're telling me that this is the gun. And you're sitting here having to spoon feed bullshit that you don't you wouldn't eat. They never found the gun. Yeah, no, they did not. I think that the 1927 gun was. I don't think that was it. No, no, that was no, not no, the gun. no,
2: no. Despite an acquittal, the judge added five more years onto Aaron's life sentence, citing a weapons charge. Aaron was then returned to his prison cell at Sousa Baranowski, where the events that unfolded next would both shock the nation and leave yet another family in mourning. So what do we think? Do you think he kill? he was the trigger man in the Boston shootings?
1: So that's the the only um, I think I mean, obviously, he was in the car. Obviously, he was there. Uh, I think then his later behavior indicates that he has this kind of enragey, easily enraged and I think Alexander Bradley for all of his faults had witnessed this rage and like I said his r- known role was to step in and stop Aaron from going off and I think Bradley was shooting and Aaron not shooting at Bradley was driving and Aaron saw that it was those people. There may have been a shouting match. They may have flashed a gun. I don't know. But regardless, I think Aaron was the shooter. There was some kind of words exchanged and he was trying to get himself amped back up. He he gets like this like this rage kind of thing going and he feels like someone slided him or whatever. But in Jose Baez's book, he does provide a very convincing artist rendering of the way that the shots went into the victim's car and how it would be physically impossible, given Aaron's stature, to angle the gun out the driver's seat. Because basically, if you're looking at the cars from behind, the BMW's on the left. the Aaron's car is on the right. Aaron is then even further over because he's in the dr- passenger seat. Bradley's driving. And the stated narrative from Bradley is that Aaron leans over him and shoots out the driver's side so window. So Bradley admitted to driving. Yes. Yes and so the his version is that Aaron leaned over him and shot out the window. Jose Baez is argument is that it's it would be physically impossible given aaron's the, the shape of his body and him being able to lean over bradley when you do the, you know like on csi they put those long straws to show like where yeah. the trajectory went mm-hmm. when you aim the trajectory of the bullets that it would have been impossible where the way it hit aquiline free air and then the two victims you know daniel Debray and Sophia of where they were hit that it would have been impossible for aaron to have been the shooter and so and again it's one of those is it i don't think science is subjective but it is a very convincing piece of you know it's not really evidence i guess it's more of a, a convincing illustration of the evidence that I, if i was on the jury i would be like yeah you're right it doesn't look like that's possible so it's one of those where he lays out his case and as i'm reading the book I'm like i could completely see how even if Aaron really did it i can completely see how there was no way that they could approve he it. had a better lawyer than the prosecution oh yeah and I think they rushed it. I'm like, why would you, like, why wouldn't you have spent way more time trying to find the gun, trying to, like, they were, I don't know what, I guess, you know, on one hand, you want to give justice to the victim's families, but then you bungled it, so it yeah. didn't, so then now they're left with, you know, he's technically not guilty of this crime, so, like, he's in jail for life. Like, what do you think's going to happen? Like, why would you rush this? He's not going yeah. anywhere. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense.
2: Did they counter with their own... Um. Trajectory explanation of like, well, it also isn't possible from the driver's side for them to have been shot this way, or maybe countered the argument that like, no, it is possible for the person that had been in the passenger seat to shoot.
1: It's like that. It's dueling. It's what you call dueling experts. You know, where like our expert says that the trajectory was this way, our expert says it was this way, and it's whichever one you find more credible. Yeah. And I think you, as a prosecutor, lose credibility when you're saying. His The gun was this 1927 gun and it's like, and Jose Baez points in that and it's like, are you stupid? Really? You think someone that's worth $40 million shoots people with that? Which is kind of a sick argument. But then also, oh, well, we think that he got into a fight because they spilled a drink on him. And Jose Baez is like, this man is rich. He's a football player. He doesn't give a shit if people spill drinks on him. But... But Alexander Bradley, he's a you know, he's yeah. a crazy gangbanger with a vengeance and he's got a lot of violence. So when you start painting, effectively painting these characters, people buy your narrative over the other side, especially when the prosecution, like I said, Jose Baez is sitting there going, from day one, the cops didn't give a shit about these victims and they don't give a shit about them today because they're here pushing a fake case against my client because he's famous. And when the real killer is actually in the room and they're cut a deal with them and they're all in cahoots together and they've all... They're all screwed. The family, and now they're trying to screw my client. And you, as a jury, go, yeah, that makes sense. I believe that he's a good lawyer, man. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, so good. Going to be a crime con. I know. Maybe we can meet him. Oh God, if I met Jose Baez, um, just to respect,
2: just no, out of. And I, I was saying, um, because I was thinking about something else, but yeah, I, I, I respect him. This there's some stuff with Casey Anthony that's troublesome (laughs) we won't get into on this episode. But yeah. Yeah, I don't know, man. I I originally thought he did pull the trigger in the Boston shootings. But Baez paints a he he makes a good argument. So I don't know. But at the same time, even though the Boston stuff couldn't be introduced in the Lloyd case, if I know everything I'm like he did do that, so he is capable of murder. Mm -hmm. So if this, then what? You know, I mean, I think that he definitely could have shot them, Mm -hmm. but in the end, um,
1: justice was not found for those two young men. No, and their families in the Netflix documentary, you see, they're just and and they file a civil lawsuit as well as as is their right and as they should, but because they're just crushed that. They think, OK, well, you know, they the other family got justice insofar as you can. Yeah. Maybe we will, too. And then, you know. Yeah. They, they're they they're left without their family members and without that guilty verdict that they want. Well, in the next episode,
2: there's going to be one more family left without a family member after yeah. we we wrap this up with the conclusion of
1: we'll go over the appeal the conclusion of him and then the, the change in the law that has happened in, in the intervening yes, years and the updates. award Yeah. yeah. So,
2: um, yeah, one more, one more to come and we're, uh, wrapping all this up. So let us know what, what you guys think. And thank you for sticking with us through all of this. this is a long one. But again, like, I find it so fascinating. I do, too. I so could... many facets, and you just keep digging, and you find out more and more.
1: It's I just wild. I spent hours reading about this and then also CTE stuff on Sunday. And just we'll hours. get into the CTE stuff in the fourth one. And that is, I mean,
2: you could do a eight-series episode on that. In documentary itself. after yeah. documentary
1: is on it, yeah. Well, we have some live shows coming up, That's Heather. That's right. The Cult, which is our improv troupe, we have so much fun with that. It's on February 22nd at 9 p.m. at Dallas Comedy House. And then March 28th at 6 p.m. at the Dallas Comedy Festival, we will be doing a Sinisterhood Live. We'll also be performing yes. with The Cult on uh, March 27th. So, Yes, so... Tickets will go
2: on sale for those shows at the end of February. We will post about them. Um, Follow us on all our social media stuff to learn more about it. You can find tickets for the cult show this coming weekend on our website. That's right. right. Sinisterhood will always remain free. But if you wish to donate to our Patreon to help offset the cost of making and hosting the show, you can visit Sinisterhood.com and click on Patreon in the top right corner. You'll get some sweet perks like Patreon-exclusive content, a Sinisterhood sticker, Membership to our exclusive Patreon Facebook group for those in the ruling the airwaves tier. A special shout
1: out on the show and a monthly bonus mini-sode. We also have weekly bonus content like our mixed bag where this week I've got a documentary, a book, and a little another fun book for Christy, and she has no idea what they are. I don't, but I, Heather brought in the little fun book
2: and said, "Don't look! This is for my mix bag." And I'm, I've been trying really hard not to look don't at
1: look. it. Um, and then also we do video content, so we will be filming our live show for the Dallas Comedy Festival, and that will go up there. So you get all kinds of fun stuff. And make sure you stick around after our sign-offs to hear your shout-out. So many of you have been tagging us in pictures of your sweet Sinisterhood merch. Please keep those pictures coming. And if you want to get some cool swag of your own, like t-shirts, mugs, totes, and even clothes for your kiddos, as well as our new baseball tee featuring a beautiful design by Christine Burchett, go to Sinisterhood.com and click on Shop in the top right corner. And a little birdie told me <gasps> there's about to be another new very... Rad T-shirt design Um, coming in the store. Based on uh, we've had a lot of requests for it for a a pull quote from one of the episodes.
2: In the in the episode, we joked about how we needed it on a T-shirt. You guys spoke, and we answered And um, it's freaking sweet. It's it's almost ready. It's almost ready. Well, the best thing you can do to help us grow is like, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please tell a friend who you think would like us to check us out. It means so much to us and really helps small podcasts like us get more exposure.
1: You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sinisterhood Pod and like us on Facebook at Sinisterhood. Christy, where are you at on the computer?
2: I'm on Twitter at Christy or GTFO and on Instagram at Christy M. Wallace. Oh, and I just want to say... Happy birthday to my husband!
1: Happy birthday, Tommy! <laughs> should, have, should have
2: said it earlier. Well, he does so much for our show in terms of supporting. He was our first Patreon subscriber and editing. All of our stuff every week. So we could not do this without them. He and makes, I personally couldn't do my whole life without
1: him. It's yes, so. true. The kid, the family, the life. <laughs> he's pretty <laughs> important. And he makes not only our shows sound amazing, uh, but he makes our cult live show or our cult improv shows so much funnier. Oh my gosh, he's great. The secret, as I uh, said, our true. Uh, Secret of Sinisterhood is that Tommy is funnier than the both <laughs> of us. That's
2: true. Yeah, that's our deep dark secret. <laughs> that's our deep dark secret that we are very
1: open about. yes yeah, so we're our very open. Deep dark secret. <laughs> we like to think that we're pretty funny, but Tommy is funny. Tommy the is funnier than both of us. Heather, where are you at? Um, you can find all my hot bathroom selfies at Heather versus the world, and find all my tweets at MCK versus the world. As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy. Hey everybody! Thank you so much for supporting the show on Patreon. Here are your special Patreon shoutouts: Margaret Namani. Kayla, Cami Strickfaden, Victoria Juarez, Samantha Lloyd, Flora Lusk, Stephanie, Jacqueline K, Allie, Albach, Belle Nguyen, Kristen Borgia, Ziana Sebastian, Erica Coomer, Ashley Lynott, Jesse Foote, Hannah Perkle, Nicole M. Gonzalez, Stephanie Mack, Lacey Burgess dawson Kaylee Steiner, Josué Diaz, Carmel N. Cochran, Jordan Beck von Brooke Kinsman, Rui Rodriguez. Emily.
2: Alexis Creamer. Amber Parvaez. Chelsea Keegan. Carmen. Cataclysm. Abigail Rector. Marie Pierce. Taylor
1: Ondich. We're cousins.
2: Oh, no. Nice.
1: Hi, cuz. Hi, cuz. <laughs> Thank you so much for supporting the show on Patreon. We absolutely could not do it without you. Uh, we know that we got Taylor's name right. Hopefully. hopefully she's uh, gonna, you're
2: related she, to her, so I hope gonna be so you mad. did. Um, but for those that uh, maybe we uh, botched it a bit, please forgive us. We love you so much. We appreciate your contribution so much and could not do this without you. Keep it creepy. <laughs> Sinister. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No
1: purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: This is NASCAR driver Tony Breidinger, inviting you to make a pit stop at Raising Cane's for my favorite craveable chicken fingers. Turbocharge your order and get it even faster when you order online or with the Raising Cane's app. Raising Cane's chicken fingers. One love. Raising Cane's is not affiliated with NASCAR